Hey, welcome to Real Talk with Nina. I'm Nina and shit is about to get real. I am beyond excited to have Dr. Lori Mintz on my podcast. You guys, this woman is the queen of cliteracy. Literally, she wrote a book about the clit. Her passion is the orgasm gap. She's a professor. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a therapist. And she is honestly one of my absolute favorite people to follow on social media. Her soapbox is the same as mine, except she has all of the clinical piece behind it and the research and the writing behind it. So I just continuously learn from her. I'm so excited to start this conversation. We're going to talk about orgasm, clit, squirting, debunking, whatever myths we could possibly debunk. And I am just so beyond ready for this conversation. Side note, we did have a recording a few months ago and yours truly somehow corrupted the file and I could no longer access it. So not only is Dr. Lori coming on, this is not the first time. This is the second time because I lost our first recording. So just kudos to her for putting aside more time for little old me. I'm going to uh, bring her on now and we'll get the conversation started. Hi, Dr. Lori. Thank you so much for coming on again. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. When you were when you were behind the scenes, I was I was saying how our our soapboxes are the same, but you have all of the clinical and the research piece and the writing piece behind it. So I just continuously learned from you about the orgasm gap and just all the myths out there that are crushing not only women, but really any gender. Because it's messing with, if you have sex with women, you're misinformed with the stuff that's out there. If you are a woman, you're also misinformed because of all the stuff that's out there. And, um, and I'm just excited to dive in with you. So tell us a little bit more about you. I explained that you're a therapist, a professor, an author, a speaker, but like, what is, what is your, you know, your wheelhouse? What is your, what is the hill you're going to die on? <laughs> well, I hope I don't die on closing the orgasm gap, you know, because that would mean we hadn't closed it by the time I die, which would be sad to me. But um, that's the hill I'm currently standing on. So I'm a professor at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, where I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. I'm a licensed psychologist in private practice. I'm a certified sex therapist in the state of Florida. I've written two books, both aimed at empowering women sexually, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. And I think the book we're going to mostly talk about are the, the concepts from the book we're going to talk about most today, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. And yes, I do public speaking, train other therapists, you know, had the honor of doing a TED talk after my book came out. So um, I saw that. I watched that one. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I watched that and I blew through your Becoming Cliterate book. And I want to get your other one. Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. Yeah. So what is that one about? That is a book for um, women identified folks who are experiencing diminished sexual desire oh. um, based on multitasking, stress, doing too much, being exhausted, being pulled too thin, which is the vast majority of when um, women lose their desire, that's the reasons they give. 
Yeah. Often. Yeah. Well, then it looks like I'm going to read that one too. All right. Well, I, you know, I definitely can, I'm in a different place now in life. My kids are a little bit older. They're 12 and nine. Um, I've learned so much about my own sexuality, how sex drive works. Like I've put in the work to, to get better as a woman and also as a partner to my, to my husband. Uh, but so much of the content that comes across in either Instagram questions or even in coaching sessions is exactly that. I always hear my wife lost her sex drive. And I always, I always laugh, but it's not funny. It isn't that they lost it. Like there's, it's that it's not, you know, I always say it's not that you lost your sex drive. It's just, we've never really been taught how to find the keys to, to turn it on, you know, and I, I think that, yeah, you know, and we're also compared to men, right? Like, like male sexuality, that spontaneous desire is the default. And so if we don't get turned on simply by having a beating heart, we must have a low sex drive. And that, and then that kind of is like this self-fulfilling prophecy where women feel broken, you know, that, oh, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't have a sex drive. I don't have one. And I think that they feel defeated. Um, where it's not so much that they that they don't have one, it's just there's things blocking it. Like like your book probably talks about all of them, um, and then they're not. I don't think women are really often given the permission to figure out what turns them on. I think that's another piece. I think there's women that still feel immense amounts of shame about watching porn because it's quote unquote a guy thing. Um, there's women who tell me they're afraid to fantasize during sex, because what does that say about their relationship? Like everything is, there's just, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but there's just such a lack of understanding about how human sexuality actually works. Uh, and so few people talk about it that we kind of aren't challenged. Our beliefs aren't being challenged. So we just kind of stick to what we know and what we know is not accurate. Right. So do you see a lot of um, female identified folks that come into your practice that say, you know, like I don't have a sex drive, something's wrong with me or, you know, and, and how do you handle them? Yeah. So I, I mo a lot of times people come to see me either for orgasm issues or low desire um, Two of the most common complaints. Right. And in terms of low desire to like. I think there's, you alluded to this spontaneous desire thing, right? And I think that a lot, my first question is often are like, do you have sex despite the low desire? And is it good when it gets going? And I would say a good number of women say yes. And I tell them, well, that's actually normative. And that's not a problem. And a lot of times women will say, well, they call that duty sex. And I say, well, if it's good when it gets going, it's not duty sex. Like you are actually implementing a very empirically supported, important sex therapy technique, which is to use receptive desire, not spontaneous desire is like, oh, I feel horny, right? And got to get it now. Um, and receptive desire is my body isn't feeling it, but my head is like, I know it'll be good when it gets going. I know I'll have a good time. I know I'll feel closer to my partner. And so really helping women to learn about receptive desire, schedule sex, plan dates, like 
a lot of times people are like, oh, that's so unromantic. And I'm like, but it's never been spontaneous. And I break that myth down, which I can do if you want. Um, yeah, sure, sure. And, um, you know, also helping people engage in self-care and mindfulness and all of that. But this whole spontaneous sex thing, like it, it never was like, and I tell people, imagine like you were going out with your now partner of long-term and you weren't married, you weren't living together, whatever. Like you got dressed up, you took a shower, you maybe put on your nice undies, you flirted all night long and <gasps> the night ended in sex. That's not spontaneous. That's well orchestrated. And you orchestrated it so well, it looked spontaneous and it's the, you know, once you get rid of that, then you can open your mind to plan sexual encounters or what I call trysts because it's a sexier word. <laughs> um, you know, it's a planned meeting between lovers and, um, you know, and, and to really give yourself the time and the space. And I also educate people on the limerence phase, which is like when we meet someone and we're like attracted or falling in love, our body's like in this state of almost obsession. I can't stop thinking about them. I can't keep my hands off of them. And that doesn't last. It's a biochemical thing, but we think it's supposed to last. So when we stop feeling that, people are like, oh no, what's wrong with me? Instead of like, that's exactly what's right with you. Cause can you imagine like actually living your whole life in Limeran's phase? Like, you couldn't. It's an right. obsessive kind of phase. So that's some of the things I talk to people about. Yeah, and and that's great. And I and I once heard, and I could be making this up, but I think that I heard that the limerence phrase is also kind of an evolutionary thing where uh, it keeps us connected long enough to get to know someone to stay there or not. Right. So like if you if you aren't interested, if you don't have that phase, it's hard to there's not much of a pull to stay around to actually get to know someone. So it's like, there's this, um, the, the necessity of the limerence phase is kind of like, it keeps us connected, even if it's superficially or sexually, but it keeps us connected so we can actually get to know them also to see if we want to stay with them or not. Have you ever heard that? I haven't, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. I heard that somewhere. I was like, you know, it does make sense because, um, I would say that most relationships start like that, where the sexual attraction is first, and then they kind of go, okay, and you're also emotionally cool. Let's let's stick this out. But there's also the other way where you've got these best friends for a long time and something just kind of clicks and all of a sudden there's this sexual attraction. But I think that's kind of more the exception to the rule. But the other thing I've found is that there's this big, you know, push for learning about the clit but I feel like that's not the whole picture, right? So I made a joke on a, uh, an earlier podcast of mine where I said, my husband mechanically, since day one, knew what to do with me. And it didn't, it didn't matter because my head has always been an issue. So he could use a vibrator on me. He could go down on me. He could use his hand. He knows exactly what to do. He could do that for 50 hours, Dr. Lori. And it, for me personally, and I feel like everybody has such a unique situation and like their like erotic formula is so different. Um, I cannot 
lay back and receive pleasure. And I know you you told you taught me a term on our last episode that got completely like deleted, a pillow princess. And I didn't know what it was. <laughs> didn't know what it was. <laughs> so can you explain what a pillow princess is to anyone who's listening? So yeah, that's somebody who is the opposite of you, right? Who would love to, revels in laying back and receiving pleasure. So do you find that people, like I have OCD and anxiety, I have since, I mean, literally showing symptoms in like toddlerhood, right? So I always say I have a very loud brain. So in order for me to actually orgasm, that loudness has to not only go away, but be replaced with something else. And that something else has to be pretty, pretty loud because my head is so loud to begin with. So for me to lay back, it literally, it actually, Dr. Lori actually doesn't even turn me on, which sounds backwards. Like, Nina, if somebody's pleasing you, you should be turned on. The second I think that there's pressure for me to get off because he's doing something to me, I, sh- I shut off. I like literally cannot get out of my head at all. I guess the plus is I've never looked at my orgasm as the goal ever. And I think the positive to that <laughs> is that I go into every sexual encounter going, it depends where I'm at. Like I'll decide if, if I'm in the headspace or not. And I know pretty early on if I, you know, it depends on a lot for me, Dr. Lowe. Like I look at the time, right? So I'm so conscious of my partner. Like, is it too late for him? Like if this took me an hour, is that going to be too late for him? Or, you know, it's very, I'm very uh, partner focused. So I just had to learn what would shut that part down for me. And by taking ownership of my own orgasm, I don't have to worry about, you know, like, oh, do I tell him a little to the left? Do I tell him a little to the right? It's like too much for me. So it's an ongoing journey for sure. Do you hear a lot more women complain like, oh, my partner doesn't even go near my clit? Or do you hear more, no, the mechanics are there, but my head isn't? I hear both. Um, And you know, I think, and I think your story really illustrates, it's really important to illustrate, like, we are all unique individuals in terms of both our genitals and our brain and how they work or don't work together. And everybody's sort of erotic blueprint is different. Um, But I hear both. I hear, um, I hear women say what's wrong with me still to this day. I can't orgasm from intercourse. And that one is like, you're normal. You're normal. That's given the stats. Only four to 18% of us can. Let's get your clit involved. Then there's people who, that's like mind blowing. Then there's people who know how to get themselves off by themselves during masturbation, but they feel embarrassed with a partner. They think, ooh, that's pushy or that's a weird way instead of, and their partners, these are like a lot of times people who've had no sex ed and have gotten all their images through porn or even mainstream movies, right? So there's that, there's like this cognitive block of entitlement to pleasure or feeling like you're okay. Um, And then there's people like you whose anxiety, whose busy brain, whose self-consciousness, whose taskless, whatever, hijacks their brain. And, and you cannot have an orgasm when your brain is thinking. You know, we know 
that to have an orgasm requires really shutting off your brain. And in fact, the latest brain research shows that right before orgasm, we enter into a state similar to deep mindfulness meditation. We're not thinking, we're just feeling. Wow. I mean, that makes sense for sure. Yeah. I I didn't know there was like a brain, you know, like a a clinical proof of of the brain changing right before orgasm. Yeah. Yeah, Like we're not self-conscious. We're just in the moment. Um, We're not self-monitoring. So I mean, I think that that's why it's important to know that like I can give, you can give general tips for um, women and vulva owners to orgasm, but it's very individual. Um, And, you know, for some, they need to fantasize. For some, they need mindfulness. For some, they need to be doing something more. Like others need to be a pillow princess and just lay back and accept. There is no one size fits all, but we do know like this isn't men's fault, it's not women's fault. Culture, our culture is so broken when it comes to women's sexual pleasure. Yeah, 100%. Now you mentioned four to 18% of vulva owners can orgasm from penetration alone. So here's- Without additional clitoral stimulation. So here's my question, how can, that happen without any clitoral stimulation? Or are we talking about the internal clit being stimulated? Like, is there such thing as an orgasm with zero clitoral involvement? No, I'm talking about the point of stimulation. So I want to break, I want to differentiate between the point of stimulation, whether it's just vaginal stimulation or just clitoral or combined. I'm talking about what the action is happening. But, you know, the clitoris is a vast internal and external organ. And those people who do orgasm from penetration alone, um, it is, we don't know, right? It could be because the vagina is attached to a different nerve pathway than the clitoris. They may be um, orgasming from, uh, you know, without clitoral stimulation. On the other hand, the clitoral, the, this is all explained in my book. It's a little complicated without pictures, right? Mm-hmm. But the clitoral bulbs, um, they surround the vaginal canal. So it can be that the thrusting is stimulating the clitoris. And scientists are really still debating of are there different types of orgasms or not based on the point of stimulation. One camp says yes, Another camp says, no, no matter where the stimulation, the clitoris is always involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I've, I've also heard women describe orgasm as different sensations, which I think also throws off these conversations. So I've had women like, oh, I, you know, I come no problem from penetration alone. So I said, awesome. Can you explain what that looks like to me? Right. And they do. And I said, is it the same feeling you get with a when you stimulate your clit and like, Oh no, no, no. It's a totally different feeling. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's my issue is that when I think of orgasm, I think of one sensation, the same one I get on my own or with my husband with direct clitoral stimulation that, that pelvic floor spasming, you know, um, that's what I think of. But I think the word orgasm, it seems to have kind of this 
multiple layers of a definition as far as sensation. Like, oh no, it doesn't feel like that. It feels more like that fullness and the pressure, almost like you have to pee. And which I totally understand. I, I get that sensation with G area, which is really just whatever at the back of the clip. But the that area stimulation, I get, I understand that. But I wouldn't call that an orgasm, I guess. Like, do you, is there like one sensation associated with an orgasm or do people kind of just go, oh, if it feels really good and intense, both call it an orgasm. So here's here's what an orgasm is, okay? It is we have erectile tissue in our genitals, just like people with penises. And when we're aroused, what happens is the blood flows in but not out. That's all erectile tissue is. It has special capillaries. Usually the blood's flowing in and out, but when aroused, it flows in. It doesn't flow out and it builds up to a point of high intensity and then rhythmic contractions of the pelvic floor release that blood along with a flood of feel good hormones. There was one fascinating study. You'll love this, Nina, I think. They had people write descriptions of their orgasm and then they de-identified them in terms of, so you couldn't tell if it was a person with a penis or a vulva, they would take away things like ejaculation or any hints. They showed them to OB-GYNs and sex therapists, and they could not distinguish between male and female orgasms. Mm. It is biologically the same process. Now, um, you know, women often will tell you, and that's one of the arguments that the camp that says there's different types uses. They say, women say they feel different and the vagina is connected to the clitoris by a different nerve pathway. And they say, you know, um, when someone has an org, like their clitoris damaged or that part of their spine, they can still orgasm. So that's their arguments. And then the clitoris, everything's the clitoral argument is no matter where the stimulation is occurring, erection in the clitoris internal and external is involved in orgasm so i can't answer your question exactly but that i hope got contextualize it but i will also say i have had many many people tell me that they were orgasming until they actually orgasmed right. and they and then they were like oh now i get it that just felt good now i know what it feels like and that, that's my, I use the word fear, not to be sound like dramatic, but that's my fear is that women with vulvas are walking around thinking that this is the best, this is as good as it gets. And there's so much pressure for us to orgasm that we are essentially forcing ourselves to believe that that must've been it. That was it. That, that must've been it. You know, and I, I feel like we just, we deserve better. I just, I, every, everyone, regardless of genitalia, should really experience an orgasm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, I think that the pressure for what that, what process it should take is, is ruining it. I think it's ruining it for you know straight men that sleep with women because they have pressure 
oh my gosh, I must be, I have to be big and last a really long time because it's that thrusting that gets these women off, right? So that's unnecessary pressure on, on men, on straight men. And then for women, we're going, I have to get off from penetration because that's what an orgasm is. And I see it in porn and their whole body is shaking and it happens really fast. And meanwhile, in real life, I don't know many women that want to be jackhammered for an hour with a huge penis. I, I have yet to meet someone like that. You know, that's not usually the goal um, without any clitoral stimulation or, or anything. So I just feel like these myths are hurting, are hurting everybody. Absolutely. I mean, I, I could not agree with you more. Like <clears throat> men are under so much pressure too. And I talk about a lot, as you do, about how becoming clitorate or clitoracy benefits men too, because they, if they knew that the they're not supposed to last long, thrust hard, you know, to give an orgasm, they could do turn taking, right? They could, you know, or they could be more comfortable with a woman using a vibrator on her clit and they could relax and enjoy the encounter much more. And um, it really, it benefits everyone to understand. Anyone who is having sex with someone with a clitoris needs to understand the clitoris. And, and once they do, Ian Kerner talks a lot about this in his book, She Comes First, like it's a bitter pill to swallow for men who've been socialized to think their penis is essential but once realized it doesn't have to be a bitter pill it in fact is liberating and freeing and makes sex better for everyone i i absolutely agree and that's another book on my list um ian kerner i've heard multiple people reference that and i'm like okay i have to like i, I read come as you are by emily nagoski i read you're becoming clitorate um i have a couple on the amazon list of untrue by dr wednesday martin um, I know Dr. Court wrote something about erotic orientation versus sexual orientation. So it's like what you're turned on by is not necessarily the same as what you want in real, in real life. Right. And, yeah. and, and so in terms of orgasms, there's also this whole debacle <laughs> around squirting, female ejaculation, what is the difference? Is there a difference? How does it happen? What, like, what is going on with those, with those words? Yeah. So this is where I wish I had pictures too, but they're <laughs> in my book. Um, so first of all, um, the G spot, let's talk about that. Cause now squirting ejaculation can happen from clitoral stimulation as well, but we usually associate it with this G spot, which is an it's not a spot, it's an area that can be felt through the front of the vaginal wall that includes many um, organs. The official name is the clitoral urethral vaginal complex, CUV complex, because it has part of the vaginal wall, part of the urethra, which I'm gonna get to, which is very important for this squirting thing, and um, part of the internal clitoris. So basically, our urethra which sits right above the vaginal canal is wrapped in a sponge and it's that's a very important sponge because those two canals are so close 
That's why a lot of times we get bladder infection. When the penis is going in and out, it can bump up against the urethra and that sponge protects it. However, that sponge has also been called the female prostate gland because it is analogous to the male prostate. And within that gland, uh, prostate fluid, basically, ejaculate, female ejaculate is produced. Now, female ejaculate is about two tablespoons of this white milky fluid. And a lot of times people produce that and it comes out the urethra and they don't even know it. And that's what ejaculation is. Now, there's some evidence that we all ejaculate, but for some of us, it goes backwards into the bladder. And, but what is squirting? Now, people are like, is it pee, isn't it? The best evidence is that squirting, that gushing squirting type is the female ejaculate mixed with very diluted urine. Now, a lot of people say they want to try to squirt because of what they've seen in porn. Um, the, re the way that squirting is filmed in porn is they fill the woman's vagina up until she can't hold the liquid anymore and then they film. So it's not even coming out of the right hole, right? Because real ejaculate comes out of the urethra, not the vagina. Um, and so the what I always say to people, some some people squirt, some people don't. It doesn't, it's not a goal. It's just the way your body is or isn't. There's all these classes and tools trying to teach people to squirt. And it drives me absolutely crazy because to me, it's now just another way of our bodies being told, this is the right way to orgasm. This is the ideal way to orgasm. And it's like, how, whatever works for you, works for you. And I'm not saying people shouldn't experiment and try. See if you find that G-spot area, if it feels good. What we know from research is some people look and find it. Some people look and can't find it. We also know some people stimulate it and it feels good. Some people stimulate it and it doesn't feel good. So it's just another way we vary, not this goal to strive for. Right. And now when people, so what I'm hearing is that female ejaculate is different than female ejaculate fluid is different than squirting fluid. It's not two different types, but one is ejaculate alone. One is ejaculate mixed with diluted urine. Okay. Got it. And then I've also heard, um, actually, uh, a young guy said to me, oh, my girlfriend comes in like 60 seconds when we're having sex. So I said, in my head, I'm like, okay, right? <laughs> so I said, great, how do you know? He said, all that white creamy stuff that's on you know, my, my penis afterwards. And in my head, I'm kind of like, isn't that just like a mixture of regular vaginal lubrication might even be some discharge like that i don't equate that with an orgasm <laughs> at all no and i think that that couple needs a little more communication <laughs> i think the better way to find out is to ask did you right. come in a right. path, how can i help you do so i think yeah. that's great right and i and usually when 
I ask a guy, oh, well, does your wife orgasm when you have a sexual session, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. And in my head, I'm going, I remember when my OB said to me, when I said, I think I might be in labor. And she said, when you're in labor, you will know, <laughs> you will know. And so when men say, I think, I think she did. And I'm kind of going, well, what are you going off of, right? Because if you're going off of her moaning, trust me, most of us were trained to do that, right? Culturally, like just, I know you'd be hard pressed to find a woman who hasn't experienced discomfort during sex and, and just kept going because we're supposed to, you know, quote unquote, we're supposed to be the pleasers in the relationship. And so I, I think it's important for, you know, straight cis men who are sleeping with, you know, cis women to understand the, the, the signs of an orgasm, you know, like the, the, the pelvic contractions or I mean what what can they look for you know yes the best way is like did you come I, I I honestly think they shouldn't look at all I think they should communicate just exactly. ask just ask and then there's that guilt right on the the woman who's like oh god I didn't like how do I tell them so what do you what do you tell uh women who say come to you and say I've been faking it for you know 10 years. I can't, I can't tell him now. I mean, Oh, I get that all the time. Well, first of all, I always am fond of saying, and this isn't my quote, it's from Lonnie Barback on the book for yourself by faking, you're teaching your partner to do exactly what doesn't work for you. Mm, true. Yeah. You know, um, and I have given workshops and had the one I remember the most. I'll, I'll answer your question with a story. I gave a workshop and to lay people and um, this woman raised her hand and she said, okay, I get it now. I get why I'm orgasming by masturbation, but not with my partner, but I've been faking for 30 years. What do I do? So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that gets complicated, right? Cause to go to your partner and say, I've been faking for 30 years could really create very painful feelings, feelings of betrayal and lies. And even though it wasn't done for out of good intentions, right? So I said, you know, you don't have to confess, but here's what you can do. You can say, I went to this workshop or I listened to this podcast or I heard a radio show, whatever it is. And they were talking about the clitoris and how when um, women have sex, if they attend more of the clit, like with oral sex or manual stimulation or a vibrator, they have more intense orgasms, like either alone or coupling it with penetration. And that sounded really interesting to me. And I really love our sex life, but I want to try this new thing. What do you think about that? That's great. That is a great one. Yeah, yeah. because it's definitely the longer you go faking it, it's you know, I, I don't know. And I, I think I told you this last time I've, I've never faked an orgasm in my entire life. And although I feel like I should be like, you know, pat on the back, it wasn't because I was this super, you know, feminist empowered sexual being at all. There was never an opportunity 
that I was comfortable with where I would let a guy do all the work ever. Like I didn't have to fake it. I, I finished myself and I knew I would finish myself. So I never, I never had a reason to fake it. I understand why, why women do, unfortunately I do. Uh, I, I'm glad I, I'm glad I never did, but I'm not glad as far as the reason why. I hear you. And what I think is really important that you're talking about that I want to underscore for your listeners is you finishing yourself. Like I talk to so many women who say, I need a very specific type of stimulation. And it's so hard to teach a partner that I'm super excited. I'm super turned on. But the only way to cross the finish line, if you will, not that I like that metaphor because it makes (laughs) an accomplishment and it's an experience, not a goal. Okay, but to get there, I need to touch myself. And I feel so ashamed because that's not real sex. And I'm like, no. And I so appreciate you're talking about that and you're role modeling that because it is just as much sex if you finish yourself maybe you use your clit on your vibrator while he kisses you or touches your breasts or if you lose a clit on your vibrator during intercourse that is just as much sex as someone doing it for you and for many women that's the only way um and it's nothing to be ashamed of um so it i really advocate that as well yeah. So your role modeling that I think is just so essential. Yourself disclosing that. Thank you. Thank you. I actually just put up a post last night. This this will drive the point home. I put up a post last night that was just like a a quote, and it just said, I put a quote. I said, if you want it done, it's okay to do it yourself. This includes your orgasm during partnered sex. And I said, masturbation's three twenty one. Like it was some like psalm from church, right? And in under an hour, uh, I was telling my husband this last night. I said, oh, at the time, I was like, I only got six likes. I'm probably being shadow banned like every other sexuality person on the internet. And I went and I looked at my insights. It was shared 24 times in 56 minutes. So in my head, what that tells me is, yes, I was using humor. And that's typically on brand for me. I use humor to have really uncomfortable conversations. But to me, what that said was that that resonated with at least 24 people that they would share it on their, either in a direct message to a friend or on their own stories. And so I'm going, I really don't think people understand how quote unquote normal it is to finish yourself in partnered sex. I know men with penises that absolutely cannot have an orgasm strictly from the woman that he's with, or even men, even gay relationships, they have to do it themselves. And it seems like that you're correct. There's this real playing in our heads that that's like cheating. You know, it was like the same response I had when I ended up having a C-section with my first baby, uh, uh, subsequently my second, uh, because my cervix only dilated seven centimeters and it just hung out there. And I felt like I had cheated. Like I quote unquote took the easy way out. Um, Meanwhile, the recovery from a C-section is freaking brutal. (laughs) I had two, I'll tell you. Yeah. 
oh, I'm like, now I like envy vaginal deliveries. I'm like, oh my God. Um, but I remember that second time I tried for a vaginal birth after C-section and I got stuck at seven centimeters again. And I just sobbed, you know, like people are good. Like when I tell I had two C-sections, I feel like, oh, that's like cheating. And uh, someone equated it to being like, Nina, that's like saying you got a cavity filled but you didn't use Novocaine because you're not a, you're not a cheater. <laughs> you know, like what, what kind of mentality is that? And I think it's very much like, you know, guys that, you know, I talk to that say, oh, I can't orgasm from penetration, you know, because the, the straight, straight men that have a penis, the stimulation from the, va the vagina isn't, isn't enough for them. It's just, a, you know, and so they feel like something's really wrong really yeah, wrong it's like these these narratives like you're less of a woman if you haven't had a vaginal birth I call bs on that mm -hmm. we're both women we both had two c-sections mm -hmm. you're less of a woman if you can't orgasm from penetration I call bs on that only four to eighteen percent of us again can and these are very toxic narratives and messages that we get that we really need to correct so I, I do see the parallel very much so to what you're talking about. Yeah, there's definitely, and, and I'm still, even though I've got my erotic formula down, my husband is a pro, he knows exactly, like now he knows, he'll go, do you need blah, 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 blah? I'm like, yep. You know, he knows exactly what part he plays in my orgasm. Like, cause on the, on the other side, I can't orgasm with him unless he plays a part in it. I cannot. So it's like he is required actually <laughs> for my orgasm when I'm having partnered sex. Even so, if, see, that's important. Even if you're doing it yourself, his presence is, is required. His yep. doing other things, perhaps. Yep. I cannot he, just lay next to him and use my vibrator. That right. He has absolutely to, nothing. So that's that it is still partnered sex. Yeah. 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 So when I'm by myself, you know, it's fine. When I'm, when I'm with a partner, that partner has to not only be present, but be active. They have to be doing something. So in my head, I'm kind of like, without you, I could not have an orgasm. It isn't just me and the vibrator. I cannot do just that with a partner. I, I will not get off. Right. But you could do that alone. Yep. Yep. I could do that alone. Yeah. And that's your erotic blueprint and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's perfect for you and it's yours. And it may be different than someone else's, but I think that's such an important takeaway in Betty Dotson, you know, who we lost this past year and she was a queen of orgasms, right. And such a wonderful, you know, educator and advocate for women. She used to say an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm. And by that, she meant it didn't matter how you got there. You got there. Don't judge it. Right. You may get there by touching your clip while your partner plays with your breast. You may get it by touching your clit during intercourse. You may get it from intercourse alone because your clitoral bulbs are all engorged. It doesn't, you can, it doesn't matter. And, the, and that is, I think, the real shame that our culture has done to women is it's it there's this orgasm hierarchy that's always changing yep you know 
this way is the best way if you do it by penetration alone with squirting. If you just do a penetration alone, no squirting, well, that's good, but not as good as squirting. If you do it with combining penetration and clitoral stimulation, that's good because at least penetration is involved. Oh, just clitoral stimulation, bottom of the barrel. And yeah. um, that's just so wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I and I feel like um, you mentioned it before. I think when you were talking about Ian's book, uh, she comes first. I was watching a podcast clip on Instagram from Glennon Doyle and uh, Emily Nagoski was on uh, Glenn Doyle's podcast, and they were Glennon said, "I really think the issue here is that." If everyone truly knew the truth that the penis has little to nothing necessarily to do with the female orgasm, I'm not sure our patriarchal society could actually handle that, that blow, right? And it hit me like that. So like, why is there such a fight against the the truth that because even if you do require penetration to, to orgasm a penis isn't the only thing that can penetrate you so I feel like if we just accepted the truth I feel like anyone with a penis would actually like you said be more liberated like oh thank god it doesn't I don't have to be nine inches long and I don't have to penetrate for seven hours like no you don't but for some reason the because even in our culture still, a big penis is a sign of masculinity, apparently. Um, yeah, and, but, and research shows that men consider women's orgasms an accomplishment, you know, a, a reflection of their masculinity. And, you know, the patriarchy is, and again, I'm not blaming men, I'm blaming culture. No. You know, it's so deeply ingrained, like, the, you know, we didn't talk about this yet, but the, I one of my most biggest soapboxes, maybe this is the soapbox I'll die on, um, <laughs> is the our language that both perpetuates and reflects uh, the patriarchy and an overvaluing of male sexual pleasure. We use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. And even though that's the act that is least likely to bring women to orgasm, we call everything before foreplay, like it's just a lead up to the main event, even though the activities of foreplay are what's most likely to bring women to orgasm. And finally, this one drives me most insane of all, we call our entire genitals a vagina mm -hmm. and therefore linguistically erasing the part of ourselves that gives us the most pleasure and calling our entire genitals by the part that's sexually more useful to men than to women themselves. Wow, mic drop, Dr. Lori. That's so true. That that is so true. And you're the whole thing about foreplay, that's spot on. I feel like um foreplay is the end game for, for most people with a vulva. So um yeah, that, that's like the appetizer and like, oh well, you know, penetration is the is the real thing. But I mean, unless you're looking to have children, um, <laughs> it really right. isn't. 
if we, I, I've said before, if we overvalued, and I'll say it here, um, I said it in my TED talk, I said it in my book, but I want to say it for your listeners. If we overvalued female sexual pleasure the way we overvalue male sexual pleasure, we would call foreplay sex and intercourse post-play. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not suggesting we do that. I'm not suggesting we turn the tables, but I am saying we need to equally value the most reliable route to orgasm for people with vulvas and people with penises, which is in general, not always, There's, but in general, penile stimulation and clitoral stimulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Oh, Dr. Lori, I really hope that this just helped a whole bunch of people go, oh my gosh, what the hell have I been thinking all this time? Because I hope so too. Because I know all of the myths that I had that I was like, what am I doing? And it still takes work. I, I know better and it still takes work. Well, that just shows how deeply ingrained it is that someone even who's a sex coach and an educator and someone as knowledgeable as you still has to work with their brain. That just shows how deeply, deeply ingrained this stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Dr. Lori, how can people find you? Like how, how can we find you? You can find me on my website, www.drlaurimintz.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z.com. And from there, there's links to my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, all the same handle, Dr. Lori Mintz. And you can generally get my books anywhere books are sold. But right now, Becoming Clear, it is completely sold out in the paperback version. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm, not su- I'm not surprised, but that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, it would be awesome if we weren't in the middle of COVID and they could get, a, there's, a, there's a huge delay in getting it reprinted. Um, but sometimes used or new copies by second party sellers pop up. The audio book is still available, the Kindle book, um, you know, so that's where you can find me on my website, social media, and wherever books and ebooks and audiobooks are sold. Wonderful. And I will put all that information in the description as well. But Dr. Lori, thank you on multiple levels for coming back after we had over an hour conversation last time and it got wiped, coming back again. I really appreciate everything you do. I love following you on social media. I just think that you are having the conversations that so desperately need to be had. And there are not enough people like that in this space. So thank you so, so, so much. I am excited to get your other book. Thank you. And we can come back and talk about that. But right back at you. Thanks for all you're doing and the education and the empowerment. And it's been a joy and an honor. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori. We will talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.